All right, Victoria. So here we are. We made it work. We're on the show together. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Oh, yeah. Huh. I hate that question this year. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a hard one to answer right now. It is cuz I'm I always I have this thing as a person where I've I chose very early in my life that I would always answer that question honestly. Yeah. And so Well, I'm well today. I think I I think for like the 6 7 months at the start of the pandemic that question gave me hives and I have learned since like that I need to still find a sense of normal on my daily basis and kind of carve out some sanity. And so I feel like I still feel like it's an honest answer. Yes. No, I wasn't actually challenging your answer at all. I was, uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Cause actually the truth is I'm, I'm doing good. It's just that yeah. this little thing in the back of my head goes well within the context Exactly. You There's know? There's a caveat there. Yeah. There's a caveat. And you notice, I don't know if you noticed that, like, a lot of people's email language changed in the pandemic, where, like, people would sign off being like, I hope you're well and safe. And it would, like, become this kind of strange psychological space in the sign-off line of a, an email. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, I actually started doing that, too. Sure. It's just, once again, I think it's this uh, uh, recognition of broad context. Yeah. Yeah. It could, if we rise to the best of our human capacity, actually be a unifying, positive, bring us together type of thing. We'll see if the humans pull that off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll see. All righty. So, Victoria Schwab, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm just, you're amazing. Would you go ahead and... um let all of our lovely fellow listeners here know a little bit about who you are and what you do. Of course. So my name is Victoria Schwab. I also write as D.E. Schwab. I'm the author of 21 books <laughs> for children, teens, and adults. I like to say that I write about the space between things. I write about the space between good and evil, hero and villain, human and monster, life and death, um, boundaries and doorways take up a lot of space in my stories uh, thematically and and in the case of Gallant, my newest novel, very physically. Uh, And yeah, I'm a speculative fantasy author. I'll be honest here. Um, all of, of us course. who are writers are probably also actually wondering what that means because speculative is something, <laughs> right? You know. So if you're not a well, writer, well, I think what I know. mean by it yes, is go. that I I write fantasy that's fairly grounded in our world. So like a high fantasy author, and I could be. I mean, it's my own definition, right? Yes. So this is all up to interpretation. But high fantasy tends to take place in another world. Think of Tolkien. Um, you know, urban fantasy takes place in a cityscape, is grounded. I tend to write stories that exist at the periphery of our own reality. So that is more Gaiman or C.S. Lewis, the authors, or Susanna Clark, authors that feel like they are layering magic onto a world in which we actually live. Oh. I do that because I grew up wanting the world to be stranger than it was. Mm-hmm. And I constantly want to believe um, in the proximity of magic and the proximity of the strange and supernatural. And so rather than have a massive departure from our world, I like to bring the magic into our world. So that actually would be sort of similar for Harry Potter. It's like the world we know, but yeah, exactly. layered on top of. It's a train right away. Oh, yeah. hot. You're so cool. And you're in Scotland. 
Which is where yes. they have the train for Harry Potter. Okay, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okie dokie. Um, let's see. I'm looking at Gallant here. And uh, I had initially said Gallant, but it is Gallant. <laughs> and yeah. um, which is actually sort of fun because Gallant is an adjective for a person's behavior and Gallant is more of a noun, right? Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Okay, cool. So this book, is this, um, I have, of course, the ARC or the um, Advanced Reader Edition. And every once in a while, they'll actually change the type of paper. So I don't know if the paper will be slightly different, but I like what they have already. It's got that, you know, that sort of thicker feeling. It's not slick. It doesn't feel like plastic. It's very much has texture. So it's very cool. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the finish, I mean, to be honest, like the finished copy of a book is, I mean, there's a reason a lot of authors will make videos of them getting their finished versions is because we don't actually know what a finished book will feel like, what the treatments and details on it will be, what the paper weight will be, what the cover treatment will feel like until we get the finished version in our hands. So I currently have the same version that you do, which is the paperback arc of it. And I do like the paper, but I have no idea if it's going to be... I don't, I don't know. I'm excited to see how it changes yes. uh, between the arc and the finished copy. Yes, absolutely. I had I just had an interview with Andrea Stewart, uh, the Bone Shard daughter and the Bone Shard Emperor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Bone Shard daughter, um, you know, it's it's this incredible sort of very gorgeously textured paper because it's actually out. And then they got me the Emperor, which was an arc. And I was like, oh, yeah. it's all sort of slick. And then I thought, no, no. That's just because that's a cheaper type of paper for the arc. I'm sure it'll yeah. be, you know, you know. Well, so, it's, an, yeah. it's its own, like, I mean, it's, it's its own interesting tangent that, like, it's it's interesting. You think about the quality of an arc and you want it to be something that people enjoy. And often it becomes a status symbol having, like, a very fancy arc. But if you have a fancy enough arc, then people who get the arc are less likely to buy the finished copy. And when you think about what an arc is it's mm-hmm. meant to be a disposable entity it's not meant to be mm-hmm. something that you preserve and so oftentimes you you don't want to have the fanciest bells and whistles the gold foil and all those things on the ark right because you want you want the finished copy to feel like the finished copy you know i love that little sort of feeling of, of background that 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 insight and you know i don't even know yeah. why it triggered this for me but here's another interesting piece of trivia that you just reminded me of when you do a theater production, you have to produce Mm -hmm. all of the costumes fresh and brand new for that production. And then at the end of the production, it's all burned and destroyed. Mm -hmm. I used to think like from the conserve resources perspective, right? You know, that those would be like saved for another event or be reused or be sold or whatever. But no, they actually destroy it in order to make sure that you know for all these reasons that have to do yeah. with business reasons and I was so anyway so you're right you're right you want people who get the arc to also want to go out and get the next one oh that's so fun okay cool exactly I, I so a little behind things. the scenes yeah yeah I mean just think you know you it's like it's a movie production think about um any of these amazing we'll talk about your Netflix experience soon but you know amazing Netflix productions and there's all these clothes and all this stuff and they're just covered in jewels and brocade and all this stuff. And then you're like, really? They're just going to destroy it at the end? Mm-hmm. All right, back to your book. So you have your book with you, right? I do. You do. We didn't talk about this, so feel free to say no if you want. But that page zero, the one that's Oh, yeah. In... Do you want me to read it? Oh, my gosh. Do you want to? Of course. Okay. Seriously, it's like um, 
brilliantly creepy. I'm so excited. All right, everyone, hold on to your <laughs> hold on to your steering wheel. Okay. And uh, so something yeah. I will just explain real fast is that we'll get to the illustrations, but there yeah. are at the beginning of each of the six parts, one of these, what you would call a page zero, um, an interstitial, I would call it from the master of the house. That's all that I'm going to say that you know him as. So you meet the master of the house in his perspective six times throughout the book. And so this is the very first one at the beginning of the book. Brilliant. All right. Are you ready? Yes. Whenever I do reading, someone was like, close your eyes, listen, get comfortable. Okay. The master of the house stands at the garden wall. It is a grim stretch of stone, an iron door locked and bolted at its center. There is a narrow gap between the door and the rocks. And when the breeze is right, it carries the scent of summer sweet as melon, and the distant warmth of sun. There is no breeze tonight, no moon, and yet he is bathed in moonlight. It catches the edges of his tattered coat. It shines on the bones where they show through his skin. He trails his hand along the wall, searching for cracks. Stubborn strands of ivy follow in his wake, questing like fingers into every fissure. And nearby, a bit of stone breaks free and tumbles to the ground, exposing a narrow slice of someone else's knife. The culprit, a field mouse scrambles through and then down the wall over the master's boot. He catches it in one hand with all the grace of a snake. He bends his head to the crack, fastens his milk-white eyes on the other side, the other garden, the other house. In his hand, the mouse squirms and the master squeezes. Hush, he says in a voice like empty room. He is listening to the other side, to the soft chirp of birdsong, the wind through hushed leaves, the distant pleading of someone in their sleep. The master smiles and picks up the broken bit of rock and nestles it back into the wall where it waits like a secret. The mouse has stopped squirming in the cage of his grip, and when he opens his hand, there is nothing left but a streak of ash and rot and a few white teeth, little bigger than seeds. He tips them out onto the wasted soil and wonders what will grow. Yeah. That's the end of that section. <laughs> Readers are probably just like, enjoying yay that's wonderful but i imagine all the writers out there along with me there's like all these little points where you go oh my gosh she did that so well oh ooh. you know i'm like literally going ooh, yeah. ooh, you know through the whole thing because you're just you you i mean i'll highlight a couple of the things that i just no i can't even say it like the whole flipping thing <laughs> thank you it's fun because this is like i say my 21st novel and my very first novel was also a fairy tale mm. and so it's weird to it's cool to come back to fairy tales a decade into my career and kind of see how I can wrangle it a little differently while still kind of paying homage to a lot of the elements of a classic fairy tale. So I, um, let's see. So I think I mentioned to you, I, I spoke with Axie O recently. She um, mm -hmm. is doing this beautiful novel um, that is sort of a retelling of a Korean folk tale that, that she and many people you know, in that part of who that she's actually was born in New York and lives in Las Vegas right now. But people who are familiar with Korean culture have heard the story. And then Marissa mm -hmm. Meyer actually is coming on later today. And she's done a bunch of retellings with her Lunar uh, Chronicles. And so it seems like right now there's um, um, people are really enjoying in the writing world sort of delving into these more traditional stories that have been told over and over many times. And it makes you wonder if there's sort of a desire right now in our, in our global society to reconnect with these, these deep inherent 
meanings that folk tales are meant to bring forward. Do you have a sense of what of what it was that caused you to want I to come mean, back to this? Maybe yes and no. So so I I don't do retelling. I do original mm-hmm. tales. Um, and so my perspective will be a little bit different from somebody who is an expert in the retellings and in the recraftings. But I do think that there's something at the core of that, which is a desire for the kind of nesting that we feel when we kind of fold ourselves into a fairy tale or a folk tale, whether it's one that we know and we find comfort in the knowing of the shape of the story or mm-hmm. whether it's kind of the form and the sense and the feeling. For instance, all of my stories have a kind of a feeling of an oral tale. Mm-hmm. And I think that you, as a, as a writer, treat it a little differently in terms of the craft, in terms of the syllabolic rhythm and the cadence and the way that a story unfolds when you're emulating a folk tale as compared to an expansive fantasy novel or a literary fiction novel. I think that what we're attracted to, whether it's a retelling or an original story, is the sense of comfort and familiarity, the same you would feel with a bedtime story or with something that has that kind of... I I have a lot of readers who will say that my books make them feel like they're reading a story they already know and just Mm -hmm. haven't remembered in a long time. And I think that that's that kind of almost childhood sensibility, whether I'm writing for children or adults, this tends to happen where it's really the way the story is told as much as the story itself. Yes, there's like an archetypal nature to the story, something that we're playing with, whether it's the embodiment of ideas like death, um, grief, hope, um, you know, or whether it's just the way that the story wraps around you. I, I definitely think there's something in the telling of it that we that speaks to us as much as the content. So what is it that causes you to um, perceive or describe Gallant as a fairy tale? Like, like one person might say, oh, it's a story. Another person says it's a fairy tale. How do you differentiate mm-hmm. or what, what, where does that come from well, for you? I mean, here's the thing. All fairy tales are stories and not all stories are fairy tales, right? The right. one nests inside the other. Yeah. But I do think that there's a certain way that the story is told. I mean, there's a almost an intimacy, a closeness. The thing about fairy tales and stories which make us think of fairy tales is that they feel quiet. And I don't mean timid. Like, right. Gallant is a quiet book. It is not a timid book. But it's the kind of thing that you would tell someone when they're turning out the lights. It's the kind of thing that makes you, it's usually set in one place. That sense of place is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, it has almost like a nuclearity to it, like a closeness to it. And if you think about what Gallant is on the surface, is a story about a girl who gets invited to a house. When she gets to the house, she finds a garden, and at the back of the garden, she finds a wall, and in the wall, she finds a door, and beyond the door, she finds something else. And that is a kind of um, structure that I think is very reminiscent of a fairy tale, which is a sense of opening a door within a door within a door within a door, going deeper into a place instead of farther out of it. Right, right, right. It's sort of like, you know, you have a girl, and then, you know, her her mother dies and then her father remarries and then her father dies. Mm -hmm. And then she is moved from one room into a different room in the house. And then, you know, she's treated badly and then the fairy comes and, you know, it's like, yeah, I I, I think of it this way. Could Mm -hmm. you tell the book from memory? 
Like, is it a story that you feel like you could tell from memory? Is it a, like, right. I don't think you could pick up a Tolkien book and tell that from memory. I think you could pick up a book that has elements of a fairy tale. And while you wouldn't be able to tell the entire story, I think that you could trace the outline of the story. Uh, mm-hmm. And every time you told it, it would be a little bit different, but the heart and soul of it would be there. Yeah. And so I think that there's something intimate. When I say intimate, that's what I mean. This sense of like, I could, without ever picking up Gallant again, and if we had an hour, I could tell you the story of Gallant. Right. Well, and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think that one in particular, too, has a bit of yeah. that feeling. Whereas like The Elfstones of Shannara, which I grew up reading, like I have a really vague sense of that but i know the lion the witch Mm -hmm. and the wardrobe is like boom 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 yeah yeah okay that's so cool thank you i haven't personally ever before asked myself exactly what would be sort of the the difference between a structural fairy tale compared to a different type of a tale and so that's that's fun well and obviously a lot of authors will play with it like i don't think that there's like i'm not speaking in a prescriptive way only in a personal perceptive way yeah but i think that um, I think that one of the fun things about fairy tale is that you're playing with archetypes and with archetypal structures, and you can play with them tightly or loosely. You can play with them and subvert them. You can twist them into whatever form you want. I think that as long as you hold on to that kind of nucleus mm-hmm. of that intimate tale, then then a lot of things can be molded. The same way that somebody else could take Gallant and tell it not as a fairy tale. And it would be this big, sprawling narrative where we would follow more than one character and we would Mm -hmm. have multiple timelines and perspectives and it would spin out. Instead, Gallant sticks with one girl. Right. Yeah. No, and and sometimes something is just, it's almost like indescribable. It's like just, just, you know, I can describe this big, beautiful diamond to you with a thousand words, but... Once you go yeah. and actually look at it, you're going to gain something from just looking at it that I didn't give you yet in the words. So, you know, there can it, be, yeah. It's also, I think that there's like, some of it is like, you know it when you see it. Like, I don't just write fairy tales. I also no. write sprawling 600-page fantasy series and literary fiction and children's ghost stories right. and television shows. And so I think like the more... Uh, diversely you write in terms of form and function, Mm -hmm. the more you start to understand what those differences are. So when I sit down with a story idea, I know fairly early on what kind of story it's going to be. So Mm -hmm. like I will sit down with a fantasy series and I will know this is a fantasy series, not a fairy tale. And, you know, you can sit there and find the language for that explanation. Sometimes you just know it in your bones that that's not the shape of the story you're telling. Right. Right, right. I really like on the back of the cover here, this was just so... One of the things I've enjoyed is the tightness of your use of language. And I think that all... the As people become better writers... Right, I don't like the word better because that's judgmental. I think as people become more experienced and effective writers, mm-hmm. they um, waste less words on the page that didn't need to be there. And so in a way that the stories just become more abundantly rich and valuable because every word that's there has like multiple reasons and, and does a lot for you. And <laughs> I think you know, you're right. And I think that there, but I think sometimes you're wrong. I think that you should always be right. And I wish you were always right. I feel like <laughs> experience brings one of two things. It either brings like a honing or it brings 
an abundance. And you'll either see authors, as they become successful, their books will either get tighter or they will get a hell of a lot longer. And it's because people let them do what they want. Right. And I'm not going to, like, make a gender line on it, but, I, but I'm but i saying that there are authors who I feel like tend to hone their craft independently and see each book as a challenge to make it stronger and leaner and to waste less words. Right. And then there are authors whose books suddenly become three to 500 pages longer because they know that they can do what they want right. <laughs> and people won't say no to them. Right. So I think some, I think some authors could do to, to hone instead of expand with success. But mm-hmm. I do, I appreciate that because I think that is like probably one of my greatest goals is to use words as economically as possible. Well, and, and it just, it's in a way it's sort of like you get more story onto the page if, you know, if you use your words really well, you can get, you know, what you get on one page, someone else might take three pages to explain. And they didn't do Agreed. it any better justice. It's not like they got more information. They just basically threw more words at you to get the same idea across. And so if, you know, someone's only got enough time to read 250 pages, they mm-hmm. would rather get, you know, um, a really, yeah, okay, Yes. So I love the well, back here. I think yes. it depends on the background as well. Like I come from a poetry background. And so oh. I, I want to use as few words as possible. I also, a constant thing I do while writing, because my publishers would let my books be longer. Um, but I never want them to be. And so I think something that I do is I'll write a paragraph and say that paragraph is four sentences. And then I'll ask myself, do I need all four sentences? Like mm-hmm. are four sentences telling me what one could not do better? Mm-hmm. And I, so I never want to be like echoing the same sentiment across. And that's something I'll see a lot of younger writers do is they will tell a thing four ways in the same paragraph right. instead of picking the best way to tell it. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of that is that they haven't yet decided to trust the reader. Yeah. I think for me, when, I, once I decide, like, you know, so when my first version of The Ghost Lords, which is the first book of my four book series, um, was mm-hmm. 210,000 words. And I gave yeah. it to a friend who's, you know, his wife was also a friend. She was an agent. He had done editing. And he's like, all right, I'll take a look at it. And he comes back, and he goes, cut it in half. I was like, okay, yeah. so, you know, version number two came out 105,000 words, you know, and then version, <laughs> you know, and it's like, um, yeah, and, and so you just, um, you just play with it, you work with it, you grow yeah. and you learn, and I'm going to read the back now because it says, everything casts a shadow, even the world we live in, and as with every shadow, there is a place where it must touch, a seam where the shadow meets its source. And I have to say, I think they did a beautiful job with the front cover of really sort of bringing that forth as an image. It's just really, it feels like there's this seam right across the middle where Gallant is written. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so enough talking about this incredible book on a physical level because we're we're running out of time. Um, But (laughs) but folks, um, so yeah, all right, people have a sense. Gallant is going to be out in March of 2022. Um, we're doing this interview a little bit in advance, but it's going to be airing. I think it should be March right now. Hi, everyone. Look at me. I'm time traveling. It's March <laughs> 2022. I love it. Okay. So um, people, uh, if you go to marchtwisdale.com, because you may not be able to remember everything when you're driving down the road, 
or maybe you only listen to half the show because you get where you're going. You got to go grocery shopping now or whatever. Um, you go to marchtwisdale.com and you look up Victoria on the homepage or in the podcast page. And when you're there to listen to the rest of this awesome podcast, you can um, see her bio. And in the bio is going to be a link to her website. And that's where you can learn everything you want to know about Victoria Schwab and all of her books. Or just remember her name and Google it. That'll work, too. Okay. <laughs> I'm very Googleable. I promise. You are. And by the way, really nice photos, too. I, I don't know oh, who your photographer you. was, but um, nice photos. <laughs> her name is Jenna Maurice. She's, she's wonderful. She's one of my best friends. There you go. Where were you? I mean, are, you've been traveling. You've been uh, at, my, at my parents' house. In France. Yeah. Got yeah. it. Got it. Okay, cool. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you, not so much how you experienced the pandemic, because yes, we can go there, but I'm just sort of more impressed with how your writing life was um, impacted, but not impacted like in a negative way. It's like, how did you roll with it? If you want to talk a little bit about your, um, your tour, which I believe mm-hmm. you had one that was like entirely virtual, but it was very effective. Yeah. And then also all your ad- adventures with Netflix. So let's go into <laughs> all that. Yeah. Well, um, so I was working on a novel called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and I had been working on it. Um, it would be a decade, essentially, from when I first started writing it to when the book came out. And mm-hmm. a decade is a very long time to work on a novel. And when you're writing a novel, you obviously don't really – can't anticipate what the world will look like. And so (laughs) this was supposed to be my 20th book and it was going to be like kind of the pinnacle of my career so far. And I was going to go on a multi-country tour that was probably going to last a couple of months, probably 10 to 12 countries. And the pandemic happened. Mm -hmm. And it was clear about six months before the book was set to come out in October of 2020. It did, but it was clear about six months before that um, things were not going to go the way it's the way that things were planned. And, and I was devastated. Obviously I was devastated on like the large global tragedy scale and on the deeply personal um, scale. I thought mm-hmm. I finally had this opportunity and, and it's nobody's going to care. Right. No, like who's going to care about a book and something really special started to happen as the advanced copies of Addie made their way out into the world, which is that I didn't, really think about it at the time I was writing it, but a lot of the themes of The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue are about stubborn hope and defiant joy. It's about a young woman who makes a deal with the devil to live forever and ends up cursed to be forgotten by everyone she meets. And so it's about her life over the course of 300 years, wherein she is forced to live in an eternal presence. She can't really leave a mark on the world around her. And so it comes to the kind of concept of, what is it worth living for? What keeps you going? And all of these themes, hope and joy and stubbornness and resiliency, you know, ended up kind of being perfect kind of catharsis for the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so as readers began to read early copies of the book and find this kind of comfort and catharsis, I realized that while the journey of Addie LaRue as a novel into the world wasn't going to look the way I had envisioned it looking, um, it was still going to be deeply impactful. And, and that's basically what happened. The tour became a virtual tour. It was about three weeks long. I was in a writer's room for my first television show at the exact same time. And so I was writing during the day, 
uh, in a writer's room from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. And I would have to check out of the room for an hour and a half each night for that first month to do a tour stop. And obviously nothing took the shape that I thought it was going to, but I have, I have no regrets. I think another thing for readers and writers to remember is that like books don't have an expiration date. Stories don't expire. And so just we'll never be able to control the way in which a story enters the world and the landscape it enters the world against. But it doesn't mean that, that that's its only chance to make an impact. Okay. So yes, exactly. In a way you're speaking to that ineffable for some reason comes to mind. I have no idea if that's a proper word, but it's just flopping around in my head. But there's this um, trait of perseverance that is probably the primary shared trait that all published authors in particular share. Mm-hmm. And and so it's just really, oh, what's the word for it? Um, well, I'm glad it, here's the thing, right? Inspiring. I'm glad it wasn't my debut novel. Mm-hmm. Like, I have been in this industry for a decade. Mm-hmm. I have had many highs and many, many lows. I've had canceled series. I've had books tank. I've had publisher changes. I've had... Um, you know, incredible accomplishments as well. And and so I'm really grateful that I wasn't on top of everything else, that I had the context of past experiences, that right. I wasn't just, I knew that like, there's a huge amount of fetishization that happens around a debut novel and so much pressure that gets put onto an author. I knew this wasn't my debut. I knew that it wasn't going to be my one and only opportunity to leave a mark. But it, it was, yeah. I it think was your you're baby. Absolutely right. In a way. I mean, it was. I, it know? was a decade. It was an incredible feat. It's the longest the story has ever taken me. But I do think that it was an, a really validating experience as well because it proved that, you know, just because things don't happen the way you anticipate doesn't mean that they don't happen the way that they should. Or that it's not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, that, that flexibility. When I remember when I was younger, I used to say flexibility is my middle name. Because I, I just felt that I would rather live a life where when things changed and, you know, I'm, you know, you're a teenager, right? You can't control everything. And if as a teenager you say, well, I'm going to become the person who can control everything. Well, you are setting yourself up for a very, very hard, hard, hard life. Yeah. You know, if that's your tact on how you're going to get through life and enjoy it. And I went the other direction. I'm like, well, I'm just going to learn how to roll with it. You know, I mean, if something <laughs> changes, I'm I'm going to be flexible and not get mad at someone because I'd rather be happy anyways, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, I get it that <clears throat> I'll edit that out. <clears throat> Sorry. I put lemon juice in my water this morning. It was a bad idea. <laughs> Okay. All right. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm just really, ah, uh, yeah. Okay. I just love that. Thank you for reminding all of us that, you know, we can get so, uh, in that, that headspace of like, I've worked really hard and now I've achieved, I'm going to achieve that goal because of all the hard work. And then at the last minute, yeah. the idea that something came along and, you know, some people would have just dissolved and been like, ah, blah, 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 blah. you know, but you, I mean, worked out. I think one of the, I think one of the hardest lessons that you learn one way or another is the difference between writing and publishing. Like mm. writing is an art and publishing is a business. And the fact is like, it's really dichotomous because as a writer, you get to play God. You are in charge of the words on the page. You are creating the world. Like you do have a kind of absolute control. 
But when it comes to publishing, you have almost none. And no matter how much work you put into a story, you will never get to determine how the story is received. Mm -hmm. You will never get to decide if you write multiple books. You will never get to have a say in which one is more popular. There are so many things that, you know, you control the writing of the story. You don't control the reading of that story. Mm -hmm. You don't control the reception of that story. You can only do your best. And I think the more novels you write, that's something that you do learn and absorb is that, Every single one is going to be its own experience, and controlling that experience is just a fallacy. Well, and you know, we've had some really interesting ups and downs in the world of publishing. We can look at the the um, the lost leading entrance of Amazon into the world, and you know, their mm -hmm. their intentional and effective use of the publishing world to sort of launch themselves to the the bad effect on the publishing world, right? So, you know, there was like a big tanking and then there was lots of small um, bookstores, you know, just disappeared right, left, and otherwise. And so there was like this this real deep negative in general in the field. And then in the middle of a pandemic, when I would imagine probably like, you know, the restaurant world is really suffering because a lot of people aren't willing to go out and eat at a restaurant or whatever, and yet the publishing world has actually done fairly well because you got a bunch of people at home and they got time on their hands. They want to read books, you know. So, I mean, the whole world is up and down and topsy-turvy. And so it feels like rather than setting yourself up with expectations of what you want the world to do for you and then being broken when it doesn't happen, you, we need to, to remain, you know, these living creatures that can bounce and move and respond to changes. Absolutely. And I want to talk a little bit about one of the weekly ways in which you sort of respond to life because <laughs> you were sharing with me this something you do that most of us don't do. And I could actually do it. I got cold water around here too. And I was sitting here going, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell can, us a little I, bit so about that. I live, I live in Edinburgh and I live just a couple blocks from the seaside. And, um, once a week, at least I go with a friend and I swim in the sea. And it is the North Sea here, so it is it is very cold, even yep. in summer. I mean, it's mid-September now, and let's see, when I swam this last weekend, it was uh, 10 degrees Celsius, so 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. And for anyone trying to create a mental calculation, if you ever swim in, like, a swimming pool at a gym, that's usually about 82 degrees. Right. So, um, you know, if you think about it, like a cold shower, if you were to take a cold shower, it would probably be about 60. So this is about 10 degrees colder than a cold shower. Yeah, definitely like an um, ice hop. And <laughs> it's cold. I mean, to give you a, to give you a reference, it's, unless you're swimming fairly hard, it's about safe. It's safe to stay in the water one minute per degree Celsius. And, well, so um, what? So that means 10 degrees before Celsius. Before hypothermia. Okay, got it. So if it's 10 degrees Celsius, it's like get in, get out in 10 minutes. Yeah, like I stay in with my friends. I swim for about 15 because, mm -hmm. I mean, we're moving. And right. I would say that my fingertips stay cold for the rest of the day, even after like, a hot shower. Oh, my gosh. Like, and, it's, and just to be sure, like you don't wear a wetsuit. Right. It's a bathing suit. <gasps> and, and like as we get into winter, I will wear neoprene gloves on my hands. Mm -hmm. um, and I wear little swimming shoes, but I, it is a cold, like it is a very cold, <laughs> but I do this because, um, 
Well, I did it because I kind of started having dreams about doing it. I walk along the seaside every single day. Mm-hmm. And then my friend said she wanted to do it as well. And so we decided to kind of buddy system it, which is a very, it's a much safer way to do it because right. um, the problem is like you warm up when you're in the water and you don't feel cold anymore. So you think you don't need to get out. Oh, and, okay. and so it's really easy to decide like, I'll just stay in the water because I'm feeling pretty good. But you're, you can't really trust like, your physical reaction at that point, because you have to be kind of mindful uh, and get out. And so it's good to go with a buddy. (laughs) It's good to go with a friend, but I love it because it never gets easy every single day. And usually it's, it's pretty cold here most of the time. So most of the days when we're going down to get in the sea, it's only 55 to 60 degrees outside the water. Mm-hmm. So you're, it's not like you're on a hot day and you want to take an icy day bath. Right. Um, and so like the act of getting in the water is its own um, fortitude test. Is its right. own, like it's a, you have it in your head. You're like, I think I can't do this. You start to get in the water. You, it's very cold. You have that reaction of like, almost that shock reaction where you kind of feel yep. a little breathless. Yeah. You think I can't do this. I can still get out. I can still get out. It gets like monumentally colder the deeper you go. So what feels right. cold around your ankles is the, the really like the roughest part is it hits about waist height. The belly. Yeah, no, it's really, the belly. <laughs> it's the belly. And then your only choice from there is to just do a drop and submerge up to your shoulders. Just yeah. like, just get it done. Um, and I feel like that is such a metaphor for my, like my relationship to writing in general, which is that like, I have that kind of fear response every time I sit down to write, like, you just got to do it. You just have to get in. I don't think I can do it. And then you do it. And what's incredible is like, I am the kind of person who doesn't enjoy writing so much as enjoys having written Mm. and, and swimming is the same way. Like when you get out of that water, you feel alive and awake. Your blood vessels have like, you know, obviously expanded. Like you are just oxygenated and, you feel powerful and you feel warm and you realize you did the thing. Yeah. Like you didn't think you could do it. You actively did it. You survived the doing of it. And it's such a microcosm for every challenge. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I have, we have cold water here. Not as cold at yeah. all. Uh, Puget, Puget Sound. So I don't know. It's probably like it. 55. Well, but thing is actually have. And it was so interesting because I was, well, around here, it's like there's this once a year thing. I think it's, New Year's Day or something. Polar Everyone, bear yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, right now jiving. Yeah. But um, the one time I went swimming, I remember having that same feeling of, you know, mm-hmm. once you get in, then in a way you're like, oh, I'm just sort of numb and tingly. And I yeah. can stay here forever, you know? And you're like, oh, I feel great. Yeah, and then yeah, after yeah. a while, I was like, you know, I probably should get out because I'm guessing I should get out. I don't feel like I should mm-hmm. get out, but I probably mentally think I should. So, yeah, the buddy system, that makes sense. Yeah, it's good. Well, and also, like, I just have an Apple Watch, and so I set my watch, and it kind of, like, I just keep an eye on my time. Is it waterproof? Um, yeah. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's, so polar bear swim, they do that here, too. Here it's considered, like, to do polar bear um, in the north, you basically swim, I think it's, once a week or once every two weeks from November to March. So in the coldest time, yeah. it will never, I guess like if, cause I plan on continuing to do the swim um, mm-hmm. here and it will get down to about, I think it'll probably get down to 35 degrees, 36 degrees in the water. So just, just over freezing. Yeah. Like yeah, basically freezing. 
Yeah. Um, you but and the I slush. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's amazing? I do this every week. And every week when I go down there, probably along the beach, five to ten other people doing this. Mm-hmm. Some in their 20s and some in their 70s. Of course. Like you, it is, there's no, like it creates a kind of incredible community feeling. Like you feel you always say hi to everyone else. You always greet them. You're kind of in it together. Right. Because you're making this decision. You have committed to it. My friend and I, we will, like, laugh at the people who are just getting into the water while we're in the water. Because it's, it's horrible. Like, right. you have, like, a complete mental barrier that has to be broken. And there's always, like, guys who think they're going to do it without, like, screaming or making a sound. And you can <laughs> see just, like, it's great to watch. Because, of course, like, once you're in it, you're like, that wasn't so hard. I can do that. Why can't they do that? But it's like, of course, you nobody but you can, can actually do the thing. Right. And I think that no matter what you're doing, it's important to remember that, like, this is something that, like, you have, you are making the active choice. Right. And I think that that's something, whether it's, like, whatever form of discipline you're trying to cultivate, whether it's writing, whether it's a hobby, whether it's job, whether it's a lifestyle, like you must make the active decision to engage with it in order to do it. I think there's a lot of people who like the idea of having written, but don't write. Yeah. And yep. the fact is like the only way you're actually going to like, say, people always ask me like, how do I write a book? And I was like, well, it involves putting a lot of words on paper very slowly. <laughs> and like the fact is like nobody, like, there's no shortcuts and nobody can do it for you. Yeah, like, I and I think the same is true with swimming in ice water. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And there's a side benefit. I mean, I apparently, whether it's an adrenaline rush or the adrenals mm-hmm. get going or whatever it is, it has a yes. like a mental health psychological effect as well. It's, yeah. There's a lot of studies that have been done on it for anxiety and depression, specifically for like medication resistant depression, seasonal affective disorder. It has an incredible adrenal response. All this to say, I am not a doctor. Please consult um, right. a physician if you have concerns. Right. But I have found from personal experience, like, it is a way to kind of shock your system back into a kind of a very sense of like presence, almost mindfulness. There's really no thinking of anything else but the water when you're in that water. (laughs) (laughs) And then you leave and I do it in the morning. And then the whole rest of the day, I feel vaguely powerful because I've done this incredible thing. And if I was able to do that, what else can I do? Right, right, right. And, and I think um, one thing, for example, you know, when people talk about how stress kills, um, and yeah. and everyone goes, oh, well, that's sort of a vague concept. It's no, actually, you know, it's being that. stressed yeah. out causes it. One of the things is the cortisol, you know, and other things like mm-hmm. that. And those are corrosive. They're they're designed to be used to help you run really fast to escape the bear. You know, the adrenaline and and so physical yeah. activity is what actually metabolizes these things out of you. And if I understand it correctly, once again, not a doctor, but from what I've read and understood is that it's the, the person who's super stressed out sitting in a chair in front of a computer screen, mm-hmm. not getting any exercise, body flooded with these stress hormones that are not being removed through physical exercise and that it has like a mm-hmm. real corrosive effect on the body and causes true harm. So Absolutely. when whether you go for a really fast you know, run or a bike ride or work out the gym or jump in really cold water that gets you breathing <laughs> yeah. really, really fast. You know, I mean, in a way, it's, 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 it's probably just getting things moving and our body just does it's, better it's a when way it's to moving. Like, especially if you are in a neurotic field like writing, I feel like it's important <laughs> to do something which grounds you in the physical space. 
And like maybe that's standing up and doing some baking. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe that's yoga, whatever it is. It's really important to find ways to like become present in your body Mm -hmm. um, and mindful of your body. And I think like we, we, those of us who spend so much time in a mental landscape, it's just even more important. Yeah. I mean, if I go walking, that feels really good. Um, but bike riding is the main thing. So usually when I'm walking, yeah. I love my little headset. I have a little Bose headset. And so I'm usually listening to something when I'm walking. But mm-hmm. when I go bike riding, I don't like to actually have a head thing on my head. Plus, you have a helmet on, you know. So yeah. when you're out there bike riding and all you can do is feel the air blowing in and out of your lungs. And then there's a hill coming up and you're pumping up that hill. It, it, it's so brilliant in the moment. Yeah. And it does feel so brilliant when you get home. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel great for the rest of the day. Like you said, it's so nice. All right. Well, okay, cool. Thank you. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll I'll go down to KVI as one of my favorite beaches and maybe I'll start seeing more people running around screaming and wailing in the cold water. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you never know. For me, it's definitely not either or. Like I have an anxiety disorder and I medicate for it, but Mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm always looking for ways to kind of like, the thing about medication, even if you take it, is that it increases your baseline. It doesn't eradicate, like, you know, the the roller coaster, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it just makes it, t- so it takes a little bit more in order to, to trigger things. And right. so I think anything that I can find, which also helps, especially, look, like from a seasonal effective perspective, I live in Scotland. There are entire parts of the year here where we are only daylight from 9.30 in the morning to 3.30 in the afternoon. Right. And so, like, seasonal effective is a massive component of mental health in the North. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like, found myself in a pub having a whiskey once at, like, 3 in the afternoon. And I was like, oh, this is why we day drink. Because it's ice cold and it's already getting dark outside. <laughs> um, so, like, it's definitely not either or. But I think, like, I'm not telling everyone to go jump in the sea. But find something is testing in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a, 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 you test know. your own resolve. Well, it's yeah. about testing your own resolve and proving to yourself that you can do hard things. Isn't yeah. that the Glennon Doyle um, phrase? Like, you can. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, there's there's so many ways in which people do this. We have, there's this thing that happens here on the island. It's a very hilly island, up and down and up mm-hmm. and down. And so they have this thing called Passport to Pain, which is where they figured <laughs> out they can create um, a certain route on the roads for bicyclists that will cause you yeah. like within a day to um, do 10,000 foot elevation gain. And it's yeah. just sort of like literally like, okay, well, let's just get you basically going up all the hills and we'll move you over here and yeah. throw you up that hill. And so passport to pain. Well, there's a gentleman I know on the island who for a few years now, he's like, well, I'm, I can't do it on a bike or don't want to, whatever his reasons are. He's like, I'm mm-hmm. going to walk the passport to pain. And, you know, so yeah. it's so cool. And suddenly everyone knows, oh, you know, Rick has started his walk. And you see him on Facebook. He's got some photos. And then after, like, a couple of weeks or whatever, he'll be like, okay, I just finished it, you know. And, and yeah, it's like an annual trial and tribulation intentionally for yourself. And then you feel so good. It's Life is yeah. great when you overcome the challenges. It's not about avoiding challenges. It's about overcoming them. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And so you spent much of the pandemic down in France, which yeah. I'm a little curious to know. I would, if, if you have any interesting s- stories to share about how 
people in different parts of the world that you've been have responded to the pandemic, things you've noticed by having the opportunity to be in different places. I'd love to hear those stories. Um, (laughs) I mean, I would say like, it's definitely a different experience than being in the United States. I, I, I am an American. I live in the U.S. part time and live in Scotland part time, but it is truly like, it's still just mind boggling to me, the idea that people could, that there are people that claim there isn't a pandemic. There are people Mm -hmm. that claim that like the, you know what it really is, is the politicization of it is so strange and so American. We had a shelter in in, in place here for a couple of months, right at the very beginning. We were one of the first epicenters here in the Seattle area. Mm -hmm. And then it moved over to New York as the next epicenter. But um, yeah, I mean, I remember feeling so um, sad for people who lived Mm -hmm. in apartment complexes or in, you know, really oh, totally. barren suburbs. I have five acres. I'm next to multiple hundreds of acres of uh, land preserve. I'm, you know, it's like shelter in place for me meant go work on my garden, hang out with my pony, deal with my chickens. I mean, you know, it was not yeah. locked in a suburb and can't that was go the thing. anywhere. I was, very, I was very privileged in that at least like I was in a small village and I could go for walks. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like nobody in our area was angry like people Mm. were scared but everyone understood that like the things we were doing were to help each other and then my parents live in an area where like there is a large an older population so everyone was just trying to keep everyone that they love and that they knew and their community and their neighbors everyone just was trying to keep everyone safe and look out Mm -hmm. for each other and so it was deeply strange to have the politicization happening in the state contrasted with the fact that like None of my parents' neighbors died. It's just a completely different environment. Right. And obviously I came back to Scotland about 16 months into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And things are laxer here. But there's also contact tracing for everyone, everywhere. We have lateral flow testing here, which are little kits that the government sends you for free. And so, like, I go whenever I go see friends or meet up with friends who are high risk. I make sure, like, all three of us do lateral flow tests, which is just, like, that 15-minute quick test that you can right, run right. yourself and self-test. And, like, it's paid for by the NHS. And right. everyone is just being mindful. I have to get out of American media. I just have to get out yeah. of American media. <laughs> it is such a, a one-song, you know, marching band. Yeah. And I'm always bouncing around and just looking at what's happening elsewhere. Plus, my mom was... She was in Portugal for the first five months of the pandemic. She got sort of trapped there mm-hmm. when they shut down all the, the borders. She'd been in Chamonix for the winter with her friend after having left Scotland yeah. where she was with her partner. And then she was in Chamonix and then they were going to go walk the, um, oh, that really cool um, walk that you do that the pilgrims did. Oh, yeah. That thing that everyone else in the world knows the name of, but I'm blanking on right now. Anyway, so they were going to do that, and they were in Portugal ready to meet up with some friends when all the borders got shut down. So she spent five months in Portugal. You know, it was such a different ambiance there than it was here. You know, it it was just, like, so mellow, and everyone just came together, and a very community supportive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It is I interesting. Mean, yeah. So Netflix, tell us a little bit about what's <laughs> going on, what you can tell us, and which book is this based upon? I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, so it's based on actually a short story that I wrote called mm-hmm. First Kill. And um, it sold to Netflix almost exactly two years ago. It comes out next year. 
or by the time people are listening to this, it comes out this year. And uh, I can't say more than that. And essentially is like the queer Buffy that I never had. So it is about a teenage, young teenage vampire named Juliet who has a crush on a new girl at her school named Calliope. And she decides that she's going to make Calliope her first kill in order to kind of like become a full vampire. She has to do this. (gasps) And Wait, she's she going to kill her crush? Yeah, she's going to, yeah, yeah, she's going to ah! kill, because she, she has a crush on her, and you're supposed to, like, choose somebody that you like, and when <laughs> she goes to bite Calliope, Calliope goes to stake her in the heart, because it turns out that her crush is a vampire hunter, oh. and it's, um, it's, I'm, I'm really excited about it. And, and hijinks it, ensue. <laughs> and hijinks ensue, exactly, exactly, so check, look for it on Netflix. Um, Wait, is this a one-off, this or is it a series? It's a series. <gasps> Excellent. Oh, now, yeah, so you yeah. were working on this in France. So tell us a little bit about what it was like. You're the writer. Apparently, you got pulled in in order to help consult or help uh, no, no, write no. with so the deal. That's not how it works on the TV side. So I am okay. the creator um, of mm-hmm. the show. Right. And then I also joined the writer's room as a, as a television writer for the show. So I wrote the first episode and I co-wrote the second episode. And I was part of one of the eight writers in the writer's room to write the rest of the season. Um, uh, and so I was in that room for five and a half months. That's what you were talking about. Okay. You were talking about earlier during your um, three week virtual tour that you were in the Mm -hmm. writer's room and then you did that and I remember sitting there thinking writer's room what is she talking about okay so a writer's room for a television show is for anyone who doesn't know is essentially normally a physical space but during the pandemic writer's rooms were done virtually Mm -hmm. um it is the room in which a staff is hired to break and form a tv a season of a television show Mm -hmm. there's usually anywhere between four and ten People in that writer's room ranked from the showrunner who was in that room. Uh, I, the creator isn't always in that room, but I was in that room as, as an executive producer and writer in that room, what's called a writing EP. Mm-hmm. And then there were two senior writers and then some mid-level writers and some brand new writers. And essentially that is the team who is like who is challenged to create the eight episodes of television for a season. Got it. And so, so almost room. all shows have a team, yeah, uh, to get varying perspectives and varying levels of expertise, sure, um, and diversity, and different episode credits, yeah, yeah. So writers' room is sort of like a it's a it's a term used in the industry. It's not, I, I, mm-hmm. it was like okay, she's like locked in a room. <laughs> no, no, no. The writers' <laughs> room is the industry term for the group that's brought together to okay. literally write a television show. Okay, because the way you described it earlier, I was like she. Where where do they rent out writers' rooms? And I was, yeah. <laughs> like a hotel with a bunch of rooms you lock yourself in. Anyways, it was funny, my imaging, when you first mentioned it. <laughs> yeah. All righty. So this was okay. a virtual space. You, yeah. So when does the – when do you believe or hope the show is going to um, launch? Uh, it should by the time people are listening to this and in a couple months. <gasps> that is exciting. Okay, yeah. and then the title of it? First Kill. Okay, so they kept the title. Yeah. Exactly the same as the book. How exciting. And if someone went to your website, First Kill is going to be, is it in the young adult section? 
Um, yeah, my website is getting updated right now. So by the time people hear this, yes, it'll be under the young adult or under anthologies because I have several short stories and this was a short story in an anthology. I love it. A short story gets turned into an entire Netflix season. Yeah. (laughs) That is an example of the power of the seed of the idea. Yeah, and short stories actually um, get optioned a lot for television because if you think about what a short story does in terms of the quantity of storytelling, it's often comparable to the pilot episode of a television show. Of course. Of course. Okay, well, so we're out of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Victoria, thank you again so much. So Victoria Schwab joining me at this point from Scotland. If it had been a few months ago, it would have been from France. I love it. (laughs) And um, this is, we talked about Gallant, which is your new book releasing March 2022. But you just have so much going on in your life. I really am so happy for you. All your successes, all your hard work, all your achievements. Thank you for giving us these books we can read. Thank you so much.